News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We will see significant uptick in economic activity, but we're still doing it with one hand tied behind our back with this redundant, unnecessary testing requirement. That is the testing requirement that Canada requires from Canadians who are returning to this country, even if they take a day trip down to the United States. Momentous day for that country yesterday as they reopened their borders to non-essential travellers. But that's U.S. Representative Brian Higgins joining four mayors of other border towns to call on the Canadian federal government to drop that PSR test, PCR test requirement for re-entering the country. And believe me, I heard from a lot of you yesterday who said the same thing. Well, joining us now to talk about what is going on on this issue is our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So this was a big day for the United States yesterday in terms of letting travelers back in. How did it go? Uh, it went well. Uh, the delays were far less than what many people had thought they were going to be. Uh, some of the busiest border crossings in Ontario uh, at the Peace Bridge in Fort Erie. The longest delays were right after midnight. It dwindled down to a couple of minutes during the day. Uh, I think I read that in uh, in Vancouver uh, and, and uh, in Abbotsford, it was 10 to 20 minutes at the absolute uh, uh, kind of peak. So the the demand was originally there. Uh, maybe there's the fear about what the United States is actually going through that kind of kept some people back. I think what we need to kind of focus on as well with that comment that you played there from Representative Higgins is the fact that politics is still playing very heavily mm-hmm. into this pandemic. And while he's calling for Canada to drop the PCR testing, I spoke with a former White House uh, policy advisor on health yesterday who said that, look, testing is still incredibly important because we're now seeing so many breakthrough cases that you can't just assume that because you're vaccinated, you're not going to be carrying that virus and potentially getting people sick now that you're crossing borders. So there is still kind of a medical benefit, according to doctors and health experts, to having that PCR test. Right. And from my understanding is that if you're flying into the United States, they still would like to see that negative test on antigen, rapid antigen test. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a requirement of the airlines that was kind of put to them by the Biden administration. But also you have to remember that there are so many countries around the world that are expecting airlines uh, or rather expecting uh, a negative test or a negative uh, anything to be able to get into their country. So the airlines are therefore tasked with making sure that you have that negative PCR or negative antigen. I think there are some calls here amongst medical experts to say, look, Canada should be willing to accept uh, the rapid antigen test because it might make it easier for people and it's more affordable for people who are trying to come back home. That's an argument, though, that keeps politics in the picture. At the end of the day, that border did reopen. The money is starting to flow. But the U.S. is still kind of in a problem with high case numbers for COVID. Right. So that hasn't. Yeah. Where are we at with that? Because it seems like that doesn't get as many headlines these days. Yeah. Look, the numbers are still stubbornly high. Uh, we're at an average in the U.S. of around 72, 73,000 cases per day. And while there was a rapid decline in cases over the last month and a bit, that's really stalled and plateaued out. And in some cases, uh, we're starting to see in the colder northern states, especially around the border, uh, that numbers are starting to increase slowly. Mm. Are we going to see a potential peak like we saw a couple of months ago? Doctors are less kind of concerned about that, but they're looking over to Europe where there's a massive spike right now where they're kind of the epicenter and things generally flow uh, back towards the West. So there is a fear here that these numbers going up might not go as drastically 
but it's going to be problematic, especially with more people coming in. Do you get the sense, Reggie, that anything, so this is the way things are going to be for now? There's not going to be any more loosening of restrictions? Like, do they want to see how things go for the next couple of weeks? I think that this is kind of where things are, uh, and considering how long it took to get here, and considering how lack, uh, how how f- you know few bits of transparency there were on what the ultimate rules were going to be, this might be the situation that the United States is in for the time being. In that, you know, if you're coming in, you need to ensure that you're being tested. You need to be ensure uh, that you are vaccinated. We also have to remember that there's a secondary set of rules that will come into play in January. In that, those that are considered essential travelers, like the healthcare workers, like the truck drivers, they're exempted from that vaccination requirement right now. That's going to go in place in January. So it's going to put a little bit more pressure on people to go out uh, and get vaccinated, especially those Americans who are crossing back and forth, considering there's still such a pushback to yeah. vaccines and vaccine mandates. It certainly seems, though, Reggie, like a lot of the big tourist destinations in the U.S. were kind of thinking that this is it. Here come the tourists. I know that I saw, you know, stories from New York City about that, stories from Las Vegas about that. Are a lot of tourists, do you think, showing up? There are big uh, kind of increases, or at least they saw big increases yesterday. And there is an anticipation here based on the stats for flights that things like uh, places like New York and Las Vegas and Los Angeles and, and uh, Orlando, they're going to see a big uptick in international travelers because uh, the world has just been shut off to kind of these big go-to destinations for the last year and a half. So there's a hope here that there could be some kind of cash injection into these cities that really struggled without having international dollars flowing in. How long is that going to last? That's all dependent on what happens with the pandemic elsewhere in the world and if that kind of creates a jittery feeling in the United States and that, hey, look, other countries aren't doing well anymore. Do we want those people coming back in? I think this is going to be a more top-line conversation at the political level and at the health level as to what this means for the United States if the world is starting to go in the opposite direction. Right, because we were thinking yesterday that the lineups at the border would have been much, much longer if there were no testing requirement for your return. Uh, Border town mayors sound like they really want hordes of Canadians to come back down there. And I think that it is simply a matter of, uh, you know, use the analogy of a kid playing with a ball. Somebody else has it, and then all of a sudden they want to do it, but now the ball is given back to them. They're not sure if they want to play with it anymore, and that could be some of the thinking about Canadians heading down to the United States. Everybody wanted to go for a year and a half, and then all of a sudden the borders are open. The case numbers are 72,000 a day. The numbers are starting to tick back up. The average person might think, hmm, maybe it's not really worth it for me to go across, especially considering where, uh, you know, the economy is at and where the dollar is at. Mayors want these people to come across. They need to entice them to come across. Politics is still playing a, a big hand, though, in uh, in the kind of medical aspect of this. And it's creating confusing, mixed and fearful messaging for those that are looking across. Right. And doesn't sound like that's going to change anytime soon. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, uh, talking about mayors who, you know, would like to see something change. I mean, the mayor of Windsor actually pointed out that one of the biggest events locally in the community there is the annual Detroit Lions Thanksgiving Day game. And he said that thousands of Canadians actually cross into Detroit every year to watch that game and participate in pre- and post-game activities. Well, are they going to be doing that this year because of that, you know, PCR test requirement to come back home? That is the question. A lot of these, that's why these border town mayors are so adamant that they want to see that testing requirement dropped. They need the Canadians back. I know that Blaine, we talked about that yesterday, right? They had the big banner up saying, welcome back Canadians. Not sure they saw a whole lot of them yesterday. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You've probably seen the story in the news over the last week or so. A lot of debate about the CEO of Air Canada. And it's not about airfares or routes or jobs or anything like that. It's about the languages that he speaks. And for more on this, we're joined now by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this story, <laughs> it had me buzzing. Yeah, when Christia Freeland uh, called out the Air Canada CEO, Michael Rousseau, for not speaking French very well, despite having lived in, for example, Montreal for over 10 years and still not speaking more, you know, French than what was called approximative. I don't know what that is. Like, is that elementary school French where you, you learn the alphabet? I don't know. But I have opinions on this. <laughs> French is one of our country's official languages. I think everyone should make an attempt at speaking it. Doesn't mean everyone needs to speak it perfectly. But if you are in certain senior roles of prominence for the government, crown corporations, for Air Canada, my goodness, you should speak French. And I don't care if you speak it sloppily. Just make the attempt. Right. Get humble hey, and stumble. Here's what I don't understand about this story is that here's somebody who's clearly a very smart person, right? He rose to become the CEO of Air Canada. Why was he dumb enough to even talk about this and say this in person? <laughs> because this is kind of one of those own goal situations. He he is the one who brought this up. He made these comments unprompted. Yeah, I think some people just get so comfortable and cushy in their positions and they don't realize what other, you know, they're taking for granted what other people work really hard at. I think he just threw it out there willy-nilly, not thinking it's a really big deal, which again... He lives in Quebec. How could he not know that was going to be a big deal? It, yeah, it's just a sign of being totally oblivious in a country where so many citizens speak to three, four languages, where immigrants have been ridiculed for not speaking English perfectly, Mr. Rousseau uh, takes this massive paycheck every year that he earns from Air Canada. He could take that and hire a tutor, certainly, and learn some French. You know, when my dad immigrated from India to Canada by way of England, he had already been taking English at school in his village in India. And then he, you know, worked in uh, English in London, picked up some more. But when he was going to immigrate to Canada, he knew that French was one of the official languages. So my dad took French lessons and he tried to teach himself French. And it does not sound like it was pretty whatsoever, <laughs> no, even though not. he was... He was coming to Vancouver. Where I know, people but don't even speak French at I all. I am of and the so belief. I'm of the belief that the more languages anybody learns, it is great for them. It's great for your brain. It's everybody wants to do those little brain puzzles and things on on you know the internet. No, no, like learn. Try to learn another language. It is good for your brain, no matter how old you are. So I don't understand why somebody in that position, that high up, who does live in Montreal, wouldn't want to become fluent in French. Like, you have that opportunity. You live in Montreal. And then, like you said, he just, like, he fanned it out there yeah. in public, unprompted. I think that when someone, not everyone, but a lot of people, when they experience such extreme privilege, it makes them oblivious to how their words fall, and despite their intentions. But you know what? I don't care about intentions here. Given his position and his stature, and like you said, he's a smart man, 
learn French for goodness sake. Like have some respect for the province that you live in and the people that work for you. A lot of them being uh, their first French is their first language and learn some French already. <laughs> yeah. This story just blew my mind. And it was what was funny too about it when I was following it along is that the day he made those comments, pretty much an hour after he made those comments, it, reporters kind of started to pick up on this and went, uh oh, this is going to be a big deal. And it still took him days to walk that back where I thought somebody at Air Canada, somebody failed their boss, essentially, in not telling him right away, this is going to be a problem, get out there and fix this ASAP. And now you've got, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister, Krista Freeland, weighing in saying that she thinks that, yes, he absolutely should be bilingual. And you just think, how how does something like that happen among people who are supposed to be so smart? Well, how was he hired for the position in the first place? I mean, national airline in Canada and you're not bilingual. How did that happen? That's that's a shocker to me in the first mm. place. Like, well, I'm he sure. should not have gotten into that position at all without being uh, totally bilingual. Like really, truly bilingual. Well, now I'm sure they're all wondering the same thing. Raji, thank you. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the city of Vancouver has six key targets in its climate plan, a plan they've had in place for two years now. So what is the holdup in getting this thing going? Well, simply put, money. According to the latest report from the city of Vancouver, the biggest hurdle for their climate plan is a lack of funding. And of course, this is all part of that debate. Remember the proposed pollution surcharge on street parking, which lost in a very narrow vote at City Council just a few weeks ago. Well, this report also says there is a $230 million funding gap with no alternative to address that financial hole now that the parking plan has also been defeated. Well, to talk more about this today, we're joined by Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Does this surprise you? Uh, No, no. In fact, I mean, this is uh, sadly also the sort of message we're hearing out of uh, out of COP26 in Glasgow right now is that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the targets that uh, countries and local governments had had implemented, um, they're they're just not they're not reaching those goals. And um, it becomes sort of a really a matter of is it is this just a theoretical or a visionary goal, or is this actually something that we're going to match with actions? And as you rightly pointed out, a lot of those actions will come with a price tag. So that's where it gets complicated. So uh, what does council do about that? Because clearly, like what happened with that whole parking surcharge vote, it was, it was so controversial, right? It generated so much discussion. Where does council go from here? Well, you know, one of the, the pieces that was highlighted at the update that we got from staff around the our targets and, and goals was that that maybe they need to pivot a little bit on some of the communications. I think that that particular piece probably could have been managed in a different way um, and communicated differently around the, the, the parking utility fee. I, I do kind of maintain that that as a, as a curbside management fee, uh, 13 cents a day to park your private vehicle on public spaces is entirely reasonable. I don't think it was communicated in a very reasonable way, and I think the public rightly saw it as a bit of a greenwashed slushy kind of thing. And, and that was where the pushback came. And that's obviously where a lot of my colleagues felt, felt the, the, the heat, no pun intended, uh, as we talk about climate change and heat tones and the like. Uh, but they felt the heat and they felt they had to, to back down from that, which is unfortunate because it would have uh, put us in a position with, with some extra resources that we're not trying to tap out of, 
out of general tax revenue to address some of the sort of the some of the the moves that we we need to make to meet some of our targets and and I and I certainly get that that this isn't something that Vancouver can do it alone but we are uh, leaders in in this particular kind of scope of of local governments addressing climate change and increasingly local governments are looking to those leaders to figure out what they can do to meet uh, the need for addressing climate change and building more resilient cities. And I mean, if anybody doubts the need for us to meet that demand, you only need to look back at the summer with the heat dome and, you know, the cost that that imparted on, on human life and, and obviously on, on our healthcare system and our first responders. And we're going to see increasingly impacts of that nature um, as we struggle to, to, to address the impacts of climate change on our, on our, what frankly is a, a somewhat uh, fragile system. We still have, you know, a ton of, of um, dual uh, sanitary and storm sewer systems that need to be separated. We know that, that rising temperatures in the Salish Sea are going to impact our fisheries and our shellfish. And in turn, that's going to impact things like whales. That's going to impact things like tourism. So these are all, you know, corollary effects of a changing climate that we do need to be know, serious and thoughtful about. So where does that leave council then? Like, do you bring something back? Do you try again? Uh, I know that was a bit of a rebuke with that vote and the way it went with the backlash to it. But as you said, maybe it was communicated poorly. So uh, do you try again? I I don't think we have a choice. Yeah, we're going to keep trying again. And there's, and there's, you know, there's, um, we need to sort of address all the tools and all the, the opportunities that we can avail ourselves. So, for instance, uh, last week I put forward a, a motion I worked with the Vancouver Humane Society on. It was passed unanimously at council, and it was, you know, a shift um, in our food procurement policy. So we buy food for a number of sort of community kitchens to feed low-income folks and, and our concessions and stuff. And by shifting uh, our procurement to 20% plant-based, we would uh, reduce an equivalent of about 500 tons of greenhouse gas per year. Uh, and and save ourselves money at the same time. So, so we have some pretty clearly articulated big moves that we're working on. Uh, but there's lots of little moves that we can be making as well. And that's everything from, you know, shifting to plant based, to um, you know, increasing the amount of of EV charging stations, to increasing the amount of tree canopy in our city, to so that when we have another heat dome, that our residents are finding more shade by virtue of the natural resilience that we're building into our city. Right. We also know that, uh, you know, more than 78% of BC's public sector emissions are caused by buildings. That is something it seems to me the city of Vancouver can do something about, can't it? And that certainly is what we are doing. I think the big challenge is the existing buildings. So on new buildings, we're, we're definitely pushing it in that direction. Uh, we do need uh, industry to catch up to a lot of these directions. So a, a lot of net zero retrofit, we don't have the, the industry support to outfit everybody with, um, you know, heat pumps and the like, because that's relatively new technology. And, and certainly when you're getting into hydronic heating systems, which a lot of us would have uh, with the radiator systems and stuff, that's another layer of kind of technical prowess that we need to see the industry step up to. But I think that's where the province can also take a, a more active role in ensuring that we are we are training folks to be able to do that across our province and obviously here in the lower mainland. So what is the way to get to people on this, Pete? Like, how do you bring them on board? People agree with things like bike paths and the tree canopy and all of that. Like, how do you, how do you do more of that to show people that this is how we do it? Well, and that's a great point. And I think that 
speaks to the sort of communication style. We, we know from the report back that uh, 90% of residents are actually concerned about the climate. So it's, it's no longer a case of trying to convince folks that climate change is real. But only 10% of residents really understand the type and scale of action needed. Uh, we saw at COP26, for instance, that, that you know, the, the target of, of reducing um, temperature rise to 1.5 degrees has now shifted to 1.8 degrees, which is, is a pretty significant shift. I know it's only 0.3 degrees, but but I think that reflects the reality of of the struggle for for all of us to try and meet some of these targets. So we do need to do a different style of communication because it's clear uh, that Vancouverites recognize the the need for climate action, and I, and this is a city that I think um, you know by virtue of where we live, we really appreciate. Uh, our natural environment, and this is the city that gave birth to to Greenpeace, and this is the city that when I was when I was a kid, we would march 100,000 strong in anti anti nuclear war rallies across the the bridge, and and this is the city that today we see, you know, tens of thousands of kids marching against, uh, you know, on Friday's future uh, for the climate. So so there is that ethos in our city, and I think we need to find ways to tap it in. But we also need to find ways to do it in in, uh, folk, in ways that are authentic and clearly communicated, and and don't leave folks with the sense that it's that it's a greenwash or that mm-hmm. it's a tax grab. But recognizing that this is what we all have to do, and we have to roll up our sleeves and and dig in and find find ways that we can you know protect the planet, but also protecting our city because a lot of these these interventions are going to be things that we need to do as a city, regardless of our you know, um, commitment to global climate change, things like sea level rise, things like heat domes, things like, you know, more severe weather events. I mean, we almost had a tornado last week. I mean, we are... Oh, don't get me started some, on that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing some significant changes. And, and you know, these, these when we get these atmospheric rivers or whatever they're calling them, and they, they dump so much rain, those are, those are the kind of things that overwhelm our infrastructure. And we, you know, as... as you know, the oldest and biggest city in the region, we have some of the oldest in- infrastructure. A lot of our infrastructure is, you know, 100 years old in yeah. the city. It's, it's not like we're a, a new suburb that has all brand new infrastructure. We have older infrastructure that we need to replace. It all comes with a price tag. That is so true. Uh, thank you for your time on that this morning. Cheers. Have a great day. Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry talking about climate change goals in the city of Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Gutierrez in for White, got a piece of it. There's goal, and it's tied. Oh, there it was. That was the moment. That's such a great game on Sunday. BC Place was packed for it, watching the Vancouver Whitecaps make it to, to the playoffs as their underdog season continues. First time they're going to be in the playoffs since 2017, and that's despite the rough start they had to the season. Let's break it down. What was the difference? What made the change happen for them? Well, joining us is Colin Miller, Whitecaps TV analyst and former Canadian men's player and coach. Colin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. But that was exciting, wasn't it? It, it really was. It really was. I mean, there were so many uh, uh, factors that were in the Whitecaps' favour on, on Sunday, but they still had a job to do. You know, they... Uh, a draw or a win would have put us into the playoffs. Um, but even a couple of results, uh, if we had lost, if they had gone for us, the Whitecaps would still have been pretty safe. So uh, we were almost assured, I would say. 
excuse me, I would have said that uh, of getting into the playoffs, but we're there and delighted. I mean, over twenty five thousand there on on Sunday as well, Simi, watching the game. So uh, a really exciting time for for yeah. uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps. Colin, what do you think made the difference here? Because the season certainly started out a bit rough. It didn't seem like this was going to be the outcome, did it? Well, I mean, there were so many factors, again, with with COVID and, and down in uh, the Whitecaps being based down south, um, you know, in, in, excuse me, in Salt Lake. There was, yeah, there was all of that stuff. I mean, there was, uh, I think, an entourage of about 85, 87 people that the Whitecaps had paid to go down and, and base themselves in the States. So that was massive. Uh, and I think, you know, and I've said before, Simi, that Mark DeSanos and his staff previous uh, deserved a lot of credit, uh, you know, to keep the, the team ticking along to try to make sure that they were still very competitive by the time they came back to Vancouver. And I also said, along with Corey Basso, that the fans would have been so important when we got back to BC and uh, sorry, back to Vancouver and played in BC Place. So a really difficult season from being away from home for so long, for at least half the season, I believe. And then the real turning point for me was coming back to BC Place and having the fans behind the team. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the change of management with uh, with Vanny Sartini taking over from Mark DeSantos. You get a you, you get a, a sort of effect, regardless of, of what club we're talking about at this point. So, I mean, when you change your manager, you either with the interim person, you either kick on to a good level or it can go pear-shaped. And thankfully for the Vancouver Whitecaps, it, it really was a positive move for, for the club. So uh, but disappointed to see Mark DeSandos lose his job, but uh, certainly Vanny Sartini has done a wonderful job there. He really has. I know you can kind of tell with the way it's changed. It feels like the, just the feeling among the players uh, yeah. that they seem to battle back. every single, they don't ever, You can't ever count them out. Well, there's there's really we call him in the media we call him the tinker man because he keeps tinkering with the lineup and and not necessarily the formation that the Whitecaps play the team shape of the Whitecaps but he he wants to involve every player he can that's at the first team level and because certainly from a media point of view we haven't been able to figure out some of his lineups at times and where he plays <laughs> places so I can't imagine what the opposition are right. like to figure out yeah absolutely so what do they have to do they're going into the playoffs now they'll be playing Kansas City what do they have to do I, I don't think they need to change anything and I'm sure they won't Simi they, uh, one, one of the things that Vanny Sartini has, has really stressed has been um, you know a Whitecaps identity so whenever the fans and the team everybody's watching the Whitecaps they can recognise exactly what everyone is trying to do and I think the way they're playing at the moment they've, they've been relatively hard to break down and score against but they've been so dangerous on the counter-attacks I mean I mean uh, you know, this, this is a really good side sporting Kansas City, right. but they ha- they've been on a bit of a wobble. They haven't been exactly setting the heather on fire, but uh, the Whitecaps are on a bit of a run. They're dangerous. But, uh, for me, Ryan Gold, you asked earlier what's been the big difference. He certainly, for me, single-handedly has been the big difference for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Well, you know what? Fingers crossed on that one. Colin, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Sammy. Have a great day. You too. Colin Miller, Whitecaps analyst, former Canadian men's player, coach, talking about the Whitecaps heading to the playoffs. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You may have seen this story in the news, but boy, it is a big one. 32 people arrested, nearly $18,000 in stolen property recovered just this past weekend. Vancouver police describe it as a clampdown on shoplifting. And boy, there are so many people and business owners out there who would tell you it's about time. Some of the incidents included... A man and a woman alleged to have stolen 47 pairs of pants worth close to $6,000 from one clothing store on Robson Street in one afternoon. That was Friday afternoon. This rise in crime that we've been talking about in downtown Vancouver has been an issue all throughout the pandemic. And it's left a lot of businesses wondering, like, when and how will it slow down? Will this help, do you think? Well, joining us now is Nolan Marshall III, President and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning for having me. What do you think about this news from the Vancouver Police Department then? Is this a step in the right direction? It's actually very encouraging news. We've been dealing with this uh, sort of street disorder throughout the pandemic. And these incidences have been happening uh, consistently throughout the pandemic. And so to see uh, the increased presence and response from VPD is certainly part of the solution. And so the only thing that that really changed uh, over the last 48 hours was that we saw some accountability for the people committing these these crimes. We saw uh, an actual result of an increased police presence and and responsibility uh, on that end. So it it was an encouraging day. So when you say, has that, have you seen the increased police presence recently? Have businesses told you about that? We've seen an uptick in, in police presence and response. It has been a bit targeted uh, over the last couple of weeks. And what we need going forward is a consistent response uh, and presence from VPD. What you see uh, is, is across all of North American urban cities like Vancouver, uh, you see these sorts of issues. But what makes a city like New York or Chicago feel safer is the presence of police and the consistent response from police. Objectively, those cities aren't safer than Vancouver. Vancouver is actually one of the safest cities in North America. But the increased police presence and response to incidences like this does make a difference. Right. Nolan, what have you heard from businesses? Like these, these seem like quite outrageous instances that they describe here, but it sounds like this is happening fairly often. It is, and it's discouraging for businesses as we try to bring people back downtown to visit, to work. Uh, It's very discouraging because these are business owners who are often small business owners. There's a a misperception that every business in downtown is part of uh, some global conglomerate or or some national chain, when the reality is these are small businesses, these are small business owners who have invested a lot, especially over the pandemic. These are people who who come to work every day, often in retail, They're, they're making uh, minimum wage. So these are working people who are being assaulted by these people doing these violent shoplifts. Okay, so then do you need to have that presence continue? Like this is one bus. I mean, it was a big one, right? Dozens of people. But how do we keep this up? You do. So that, that's part of it. There's, you need to have a consistent police presence and response. And that would be one part of it. The second part of it is we've seen that these crimes are being committed by people who are repeat offenders. And so we as a community need to start holding the criminal justice system accountable for reducing recidivism. We can't we can't have people uh, cycled in and out of the system, whether it be for 24 hours, they're held or 30 days or six months and then come right back out on the streets and commit these types of these types of crimes. And so the justice system itself has to be held accountable for reducing that recidivism. 
And people have to do their part too, though, don't they, Nolan? Because it seems to me a lot of these goods were going to be resold. Somebody was going to buy them and they were going to get a great deal on some brand new items. They should know where those items came from. Yeah, that, that's always that's always a part of it. And we should we should encourage people uh, to do their part and, and not buy anything that that seems unreasonably uh, discounted or something that, that is, is being sold on the street. Uh, that, that that has to be a part of the problem as, as well, or the solution, I would say. Okay, and what kind, what more help do you need? You talked about a, an increased police presence, but how do we maintain that? And what kind of increased police presence works? Is it as simple as more patrols, more officers walking? It is. It really is that simple as having more patrols, more officers walking. Uh, I've, I've been in Vancouver since June, relatively new here. Uh, and I, I haven't seen police other than if there's a movie shoot or a protest going on. And that's just not the way that you uh, actively police a community and keep a community safe. We need those police officers to be present and to be a part of the response. Uh, but it's it's not just uh, a criminal justice response. We also need the health response and the housing uh, intervention that will get some of the people the help that they need and get some of the people off of the street. Right. So you're saying this is a much bigger problem than just shoplifting it is it's a it's a very complicated problem uh it involves lots of interventions from lots of systems the criminal justice system but also the health and housing uh, systems as well right police are also saying nolan that some of these shoplifting incidents remain underreported so do are stores not always reporting what's going on we are trying to encourage our stakeholders and our members to always report incidences that uh, that take place in their stores. Part of the, the problem has been uh, during COVID, offenders are not being being held in custody. Uh, and so for the police department, it takes oftentimes three hours or more to process an individual. You process that individual and they're right back out on the street within 24 hours. And so when a business owner sees the same person who victimized their store or their business right back out on the street 24 hours later, and they still have a broken window or missing merchandise, it becomes discouraging. And so you do see those business owners start to not report incidences when they happen because they don't see uh, any any tangible or meaningful result from, from that reporting. But what we're trying to do is encouraging them to continue to do that, continue to report so we can accurately track it. And we're encouraging VPD to uh, have a more consistent presence and response to these incidences. What would be your message to the public then on this, Nolan? That this is going to take a lot of a lot of work, uh, but that also downtown Vancouver is one of the safest downtowns in North America. But in order to maintain that, in order to make sure that it's the kind of place that I feel safe and that you feel safe and that workers feel safe coming back to, uh, we've got to have all of the interventions that I talked about, and we've got to hold the people responsible accountable. So we need the policing intervention. We need the justice system to reduce recidivism so that we're not seeing repeat offenders. And we need the health and housing intervention to make sure that downtown feels safe. You know, if, if I'm walking down Granville Street with my family and I see people actively harming themselves by using drugs in doorways, uh, that, that tends to make people not feel safe. So we need a housing and public health intervention to help those people as well. But this is this is something that is uh, attainable. We just have to hold the people responsible accountable. All right, Nolan, thank you for your time on that today. 
Thank you. Happy to do so. That is Nolan Marshall III, the president and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Lots of discussion, right, about the property crime, the shoplifting that's been going on in downtown Vancouver and how unsafe that has made people feel. Nolan makes some great points there, too, that there is a lot going on here. But the higher police presence, the more visibility that the police have, he said, is making a difference. VPD announcing that 32 people were arrested, nearly $18,000 in stolen property recovered just this past weekend. So they are undergoing this kind of clampdown on shoplifting right now. Uh, But it will take a lot of work. This is Mornings with Simi. You know that how long you live will really depend on where you live, even in Metro Vancouver. There is some new research that has been done on that. And joining us now is Raji Sohal with more. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simia. This is the first local study like this that looks at inequality right down to the neighborhoods. And it was done by Jessica Yu. She's a doctoral candidate at UBC School of Population and Public Health. And the study looks at death and its causes at the neighborhood level over time to try and see like what is trending with life expectancy in Metro Vancouver. What was really interesting to me about it was that it showed in 1991 something was working. And I'm curious to hear what people's thoughts are on that, that have uh, been here long enough over time to look back at in 91, did things here seem kind of like more equal? Because that's when there were fewer discrepancies across all of Metro Vancouver and life expectancy. And then Simi, in 2001, we lost course. And with the widest life expectancy gap happening in 2016 at nine and a half years. So we were making progress at some point and then we kind of lost it. Here's Jessica Yu. My personal interest comes from understanding health at that local level. And we don't have data to support how different neighborhoods compare to one another in terms of its health and vulnerability. And so there are, you know, models that were used in different parts uh, in other cities around the world, like the U.S., the U.K., uh, even in, in, in Latin America, where they have actually quantified these gaps that in, within cities. And to me, you know, I think it was very interesting to be able to assess that within Canada, because we currently don't have that data available. And I think For other researchers, they probably are interested in this kind of data to be able to make the linkages and to explain why we're seeing some of the trends we see. So Jessica's the first to do this at a very local level here in Metro Vancouver. And she studied like what are the contributions to these causes of difference in mortality. And they can see how trends differed um, down to like very specific issues like uh, causes like transport injuries where there was a 17-fold increase in some neighborhoods over others, or six-fold increases in HIV in some neighborhoods over others. And I know you hear that and you think, okay, well, then that's just the downtown east side. But some of the findings were more surprising, including over cancers. So not only did the historical trends stick out to me, you know, the fact that at some point we were making, you know, making progress and decreasing the inequality we dwelled a little deeper into cancers or mortality from cancers. And we noticed that prostate cancer or mortality from prostate cancer 
there was also up, up to, I think it was tenfold increase in some neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods. And so when we looked at some of these kind of trends and differences, and do we need to think about types of services that may actually address some of these issues? Like, can we, for example, um, increase cancer screening among these neighborhoods or increase you know, knowledge about the, the need for cancer screening, uh, increase in nutritional food accesses? You know, these are all types of services that we can discuss about, about whether they would be helpful within these communities and I think these are the kind of questions that are not only helpful for planners, like public health planners and urban planners, but also for the general public. This is so fascinating then, Raji. So were there particular neighborhoods, and I know you said the downtown east side there, but were there other residential neighborhoods that really stuck out on this? Yeah, so you mentioned downtown east side, as, along with Haney in Maple Ridge, where uh, it, the age was 86.6 years for women for life expectancy and 82.5 um for men, sorry, that's the number where it was in general. And then in Maple Ridge and downtown east side, it was 75 years. So quite a bit uh, lower there. Ooh, that's a and then huge life difference. Huge difference. And then life expectancy was highest in West Van, in West Point Gray, Northwest Richmond, and parts of South Surrey and Coquitlam. Um, she mentioned cancer there and and detection and as well as uh, these other things that would affect uh, people's health in general, like nutrition and what kind of supports are there. So her study doesn't look at like how can we solve these uh, these huge discrepancies in life expectancy, but more just that, hey, there are these life uh, expectancy differences that we were not aware of before. And then interestingly, um, the gap shrank between 1990 and 2001, but then reversed really dramatically after that and grew for the final 16 years of the study period and and looks now like it is trending towards growth still. So somehow the gap was shrunk before. And so she's really interested in looking back at that and trying to figure out uh, what happened too. In Metro Vancouver are quite privileged to, to have a lot of amenities that a lot of other cities may not have. How can we start decreasing these gaps that we're seeing? Because as you saw with the historical trends, we have at some point in time actually decreased that gap. So we have made strides in actually decreasing the inequalities that we see, especially from 1991 to 2001. So, you know, something was, was working, something was working within the city to decrease that gap. So we can learn from these trends. We can look back at these trends and, and look at what was done to decrease. And we may also look at the trends after 2001 to explain where do we kind of lose course and how did life expectancy widen? How did we get to the point where we're at now at the widest life expectancy gaps? So it sounds, Raji, like this is the beginning of more research. Yeah, it is. And she has been researching this for, for years now, but she's hoping that people like, you know, urban planners or politicians might be interested in her research in looking at how we can dis decrease these discrepancies that we do see. We all see the growing inequalities around us Um Simi, but we take for granted that we need to work really hard on uh, reversing them. And you need data 
to do that. You can't just start going for it. And so it's great that she's done this research at the neighborhood level. Yeah. The only thing I could think of in terms of what has changed over that time, right, is the housing inequality. I mean, that's the mm. biggest one, the change in house prices that that really yeah. accelerated during that same time period that she's talking about. Yeah, uh, for sure that would play into it. I think also just overall affordability of living here. Um, how much have people's wages gone up when the cost of food has gone up and the cost of housing has gone up? So that probably plays a big factor in it too. I would assume so. All right, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about life expectancy differences depending on where you live in Metro Vancouver. Certain neighborhoods, you heard her mention, have a longer life expectancy than others. For instance, why in the Haney area of Maple Ridge is life expectancy so much lower than other parts of Metro Vancouver? Uh, very interesting stuff there. This is Mornings with Simi. Earlier on the show this morning with Vaughn, we were talking about museums and history, you know, telling the stories of our shared history, maybe some stories that we haven't heard before. Well, here is something then I think for all of us to check out. It's called the Chinatown Storytelling Center. It is now open to the public, just opened as a matter of fact, and it aims to tell more Chinese Canadian stories by providing a unique modern experience. How do they do that? So what would you find there? We're going to find out right now. Carol Lee is with us, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, to talk more about this. Carol, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Simi. Well, tell me about the Chinatown Storytelling Center. To visit there, what would I find? Well, it's uh, one of the first, uh, it's the first permanent place of its kind in Canada that would tell the story of the contribution of the early Chinese pioneers uh, and their contribution of building the city and the province and the country. And it's all about stories, and uh, we have a number of interactive kiosks. Um, we've got different kind of programming and exhibits. We've got some augmented reality. So it was a place that we wanted to be very inclusive and not intimidating, which is kind of the reason why we called it Storytelling Center and, as opposed to uh, Museum. And uh, we started out with a, a database of about 150 stories, and Chinatown is made up of a lot of small stories, but I think that if you put them together, it's a it's a big history. Yeah, do you think so, this is history uh, that has been overlooked? Yeah, and I think partly it's because um, our culture, it's one of, um, you don't tell, you just, uh, you quietly just sort of move ahead. And so I think it's, uh, it's time, and, and maybe especially given the rise of anti-Asian racism, that maybe it's an appropriate timing for something like this. So... Um, people have a better understanding and, and maybe this is going to be a pathway for a more inclusive and, and caring society. So we're really excited about it and very excited about and um, the response that we've had so far. Good. We like had our opening we- yeah, we had our opening weekend this last weekend and, and it was wonderful. Yeah, I think that um, people, there's you know, many Chinese people who could see their own history in it, but also a lot of people that just grew up in Vancouver that are not Chinese that I think uh, we're unaware of some of these stories. So it's it's really great to be able to share them. How do you tell those stories? I know you wanted to make it immersive. You wanted to make it interactive. So how do you do that? So, you know, of course, you sort of in a traditional sense, we have the text panels, but um, every kind of major chapter has an uh, audiovisual station. So you can, you know, watch people telling stories 
There's some um, short documentaries. Uh, there's also um, a couple of kiosks where, you know, as I said, there's 150 stories of people that have, um, you know, come through Chinatown and we tell their stories so you can read about them. There's also uh, a studio, a Yuchu Chow studio where you can take a photograph and learn a little bit about Yuchu Chow. So he was a photographer who had a studio here that didn't just photograph um, the Chinese because they weren't able to get photographs done in in studios that, that were run by the whites, but, you know, he took photographs of sort of all the, I guess, visible minorities. So the Japanese, the, the South Asians, the Blacks, um, and the First Nations. So it's, it's, it's good. We, we, we learn a little bit about Vancouver by coming through here. How long has it taken to get to this point, Carol, where you can open the Storytelling <laughs> Center? It took longer than we thought. So uh, it took us about four years um, uh, to sort of put this together. And, and, and I guess, you know, this is a complex topic that we're talking about, 150 years of history. And how do you tell it in a different kind of way, you know, in the 21st century where, you know, children have different forms of entertainment and, and people don't really want to read the same way they used to. So we, we tried to make it so that it was more interactive and uh, more immersive. So, so far the feedback has been good. Uh, I think people like it. It's it's different when they were that than from what they were expecting. Right, and so you've got some longer term plans here, right? This is just this is not the end. Now that it's open, no. it's all, it almost <laughs> feels like it's the beginning. It is the beginning. You know, in the center, we um, we're very glad we have a a, a theater, um, Rogers Theater. So we'll be uh, doing a lot of programming there. So it's not just you know the exhibits themselves, but you know what kind of programs do you want to have? What and I think that you know we want to be a place for uh, community dialogue and, and inviting people into the space. So uh, we re- feel very fortunate that we've got this space in the heart of uh, Chinatown. Yeah, Carol, tell us, what's another one of the stories there that you think people really need to know about? Oh, my goodness. There's there's so many of these stories. But, you know, I, I think somebody like, you know, and I, I, I it's a, one of the things that I really love doing. Every time I go in there, I try to read another little story. But I think the one of Douglas Jung, um, here's somebody who um, he fought in the Second World War. Um, he was one of the uh, members of the Force 136 that fought behind enemy lines. He came back. He was a war hero. He went to university. He became a lawyer. I think he was the first MP of Chinese-Canadian descent. There's a building named after him, a federal building in downtown Vancouver. Um, but, you know, I really didn't know very much about him and was so happy to read um, that this was somebody who, you know, left a great legacy for, for all of us. I mean, the people who fought in the war, basically, you know, they, they weren't Canadian citizens. When these young men went to fight in the Second World War, Canada had not claimed them. So when they got back, they fought for the right to vote. And in, in the process of getting the right to vote, they got the right to vote for all minorities. So I think some of these are the stories that we don't know about. And, you know, you appreciate what people, you know, of previous generations sacrificed and fought for so that, you know, we all could have a better life. Were there stories, Carol, that surprised you too, where you go, how come I didn't know about this? (laughs) Most of them. Really? Well, because, you know, this is the first time, you know, there's little stories you hear there, but... um, there's just so many stories, and, and you know, this is a, sto- a history of. There's no big, big heroes. And it's like often to be a butcher. There's, 
And I think of the one of King Wong where, you know, he still, his son still runs Dollar Meats, but, you know, he was instrumental in, in lobbying in Ottawa for, you know, allowing um, barbecue meats to be sold because the health inspector wanted to close it down. So there's little champions like this that are, it's fun to know that there was somebody there ahead of you fighting for, for your rights. I can't wait to check this out. So where can people get more information? We've got a website. So this is an initiative by the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. And uh, I guess this is our, you know, we, uh, three initiatives, sort of physical, economic, and cultural revitalization. And so this is our first um, big effort um, to revitalize the culture of uh, Chinatown. And we also have a website Chinatown Foundation. No, I guess it's the Chinatown Storytelling Center.org. All right, we will check that out. Carol, thank you for telling us all about it. Thank you so much, Cindy. Best of luck. Carol Lee is chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Just this past weekend, they saw the launch of the new Chinatown Storytelling Center. It is open to the public. It aims to tell more parts of our history and Chinese-Canadian history stories that we haven't really heard before. You heard Carol say it. She didn't even know a lot of these stories, and they sound fascinating. So check that out. It is the Chinatown Storytelling Center.